WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we're joined by the writer and artist behind the webcomic Genius Animals, Vali Chandrasekharan and Jun-Pierre Shiozawa. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, guys. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thanks for having us. So uh, I'll, I'll start with our, our typical icebreaker question. Uh, what comics do you guys remember reading when you first got into the medium? Vali, uh, why don't we start with you? Uh, I really, I love comedy and I love jokes. So I really came into it from, you know, Sunday comics or like the funny strips. So sure. the two highlights of my youth were Calvin and Hobbes, which I've read through and through, I don't know how many times, and The Far Side, which I like, you know, I keep next to my, on my desk when I'm, when I'm writing, I still do it. I, I still can't believe how funny they are. Obviously a lot of genius animals, it, it, a lot of that it was infused into the DNA of genius animals because of just so many funny animals and funny animal tr- jokes are in far side. And I don't think there's anything funnier on this earth or weirder. <laughs> um. I remember very clearly one day, I think it was in 1992, where my a kid, a friend, um, brought in a copy of uh, X-Men 2, so Jimmy Claremont, and uh, Cyber Force 1, oh, and wow. I think Wildcats 1. <laughs> so that blew my mind. That was it. I was just like, what the heck is this? And I think like just the... Um, the drawings, you know, like seeing the rendering, like the, these active, act, these these figures and these dynamic poses, I hadn't really seen, I liked cartoons that were kind of in that vein, or let's say team, team uh, cartoons, you know, whether it's Transformers, G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. but like to see like the rendering in the comic book form, I actually had never really seen that. I, I just comics sort of passing by until then and yeah, so I I, um, I never forgot that, and I ended up going like a you know I ended up looking for in a comic book store afterwards soon after, and I was on the Image Comics kick <laughs> pretty early on. I you know I was especially uh, you know Jean Pierre, um, you know you've lived all over the world. Uh, obviously, you know you're half French, you're half Japanese. Grew up in America. You know I was like those are three very very different kinds of of you know uh, graphic storytelling. So I, I was kind of interested to see you know what your influences were going to end up being because you know you, you've got the whole kind of global buffet right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but like my dad would have these like incredible books in the house, like in the basement library or like on the bookshelves that I just totally ignored, like just really, at least until a certain age. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he had the entire uh, Tezuka Buddha, like the Life of Buddha manga series and oh, wow. Astro Boy, like all of these incredible manga that were just like the, the full set, they were just sitting in the house. I had, I just, they're always like on the shelf. That was just like a little too high for me to notice. And of course with the spine that was in Japanese characters. So I wasn't, it wasn't as easy for me to just pick up on them. Yeah. So my dad also had comics just in the house lying like incredible masterpieces. And I just never picked up on. And of course we also had like Asterix and Tenthound, other, other comics like that. So, and of course, Calvin and Hobbes too, for sure. Um, but like as far as just like kind of 
the floppy, you know, wiki comic. It was, yeah, it was Cyber Force One, X Men Two. So awesome. Um, Bali, do you have the, um, the, do you still get the, the far side, like page a day, uh, calendars? <laughs> By any chance? I don't, but you know what? I go to the website every once in a while to just flip through stuff. And I was really psyched about a month ago when Gary Larson drew a couple more iPad strips. It was really, <laughs> really, it was, I, I, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Just the idea that, cause he wrote in the text, he was, you know, he's so, sort of would draw once a year for, for a Christmas card or something like that. And then as he was doing that, he started to get excited about making comics again. Mm-hmm. And I got this, you know, feeling on my skin of like, oh my God, what if he does? Because he's not that old. Like, he, what if he does another full run and he, <laughs> and the, he starts hearing it again? How amazing <laughs> would that be? Like, to have done something so perfect and then figure out what's weird about the world now and then start mm-hmm. doing it again. Like, I want to know what he hears and what he sees as strange right now. That would be so thrilling. And, and that's, a, that's a crazy thing. You know, talk about, we mentioned specifically the far side and Calvin and Hobbes. Those are both strips where the cartoonists just went out on top. Like they retired years ago. And it's not like when Jay-Z or The Who retire and it's just for like, you know, an album cycle and then they come back. <laughs> Completely. I actually was trying to find a photo of Bill Watterson today, just to see like, what's he doing? Or what's he look like? And it's like, it's impossible. Like he really, re- he really appears to have just retired and is just doing whatever he wants to do artistically and living life. I've never seen anything like it. It's amazing. I'm so happy for him, but also I wouldn't mind a little more Calvin and Hobbes of too. Course. I think he's doing just, I think he's painting or I heard that he's doing just like oil painting. But it's just for himself and for his own pleasure. Um, I mean, they must be just incredible paintings because his, I mean, his Sunday comics, all of his drawing was just it's so good. And you see, you know, like the covers and everything, like these incredible, like he could do anything. Like dinosaurs, landscapes, like for, I mean, any subject. So, I mean, just, yeah. I, I think about like these epic, you know, monumental Bill Watterson, like wall painting murals or something. I was just, I don't know. I mean, who knows what he's doing? Yeah. Like it's I actually just like Calvin gave... pissing on the Twitter bird. Yes. That's all, that's all we get to see now. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. What if he's behind all those? Like that's what he's doing now is he's drawing them and putting them out. The well, I hope he's getting money from them somehow. <laughs> I mean, it, do you have a favorite far side? Cause I know I have one. I had one that I had, I had a t-shirt of it that I wore until it fell apart. And it's a classic. It's the Midvale School for the Gifted with the kid just pushing the door with the little sign that just says pull. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that says so much about the world. Yes, I love that one. I think it changes all the time. I think my favorite one right now is an empty, silent panel where there is an open box for a pogo stick and a broken seventh floor window. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and uh, you know, it's so much of it is, it's so funny because there's no movement in the drawing, but it's somehow still a funny drawing. And I can just stare at those forever to try and figure out why is this funny and not sinister? And why <laughs> I'm not feeling like he, uh, his lines are just funny. I don't know how he does it. I, I, it's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, you guys are here. Uh, you guys put out a webcomic this year called 
Genius Animals. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, pronounced the question mark that is clearly in the title. But, uh, you know, it, uh, it's, it's this comic that starts off like a romantic comedy, but quickly turns into this meditation on uh, conspiracy theories and animal experiments. Uh, what, what, what's the origin story of this project? So I started writing this, this as a movie script initially over a decade ago. I was working at 30 Rock, which was an amazing job. I loved that show so much, but the hours, we took it very seriously and the hours were very long. Mm -hmm. And I was married at the time. I just gotten married, but my wife, who's like me, grew up in the United States, was working in India. So if I ever got off at 10 p.m., mm -hmm. I wouldn't know how late I was gonna be working. So I never made plans with any friends. I would come home and I would kind of just not know what to do with myself. And I wanted to write something that was fun just for me. So I would put on that Art Bell, then, then hosted by George Nuri radio show, Coast to Coast. <laughs> we'll get I there, just... I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show so much. And I would just start writing and I wanted to write about a couple of things that were obsessing me at that time. One is I, I kind of just wanted to write something that I thought was unfilmable, that was just fun, thinking that I would do it to try and get future movie work. The other thing was on 30 Rock, Tina Fey is such a genius. She mm -hmm. said like on every other TV show, Liz and Jack, the arc would be towards putting them in a relationship. And then there would be a lot of, there's always a lot of tension in, in them that will they, won't they. And mm -hmm. then once they get together, that tension, the magic is gone, right? Like on Cheers, they basically had got rid of Diane and brought yeah. in Kirstie Alley. You know, it's, it's just hard and it's hard to break people up once they get into that relationship. And she just said, I don't want to do that. I want to find out a way to circumvent the audience's expectations, which was really fun to write. Mm -hmm. But as a result, at that, you know, I was in the middle of my career at that point. I had never really spent a lot of time writing about the main feeling that people have in life, which is falling in love. Like, and I was wondering, like, I want what, what is the way to write a story about falling in love and that really intense feeling that you have when you're in twenties, but also still subvert it. And I thought, well, I wonder if I can do something where two people fall in love and then you, they fall into some sort of big Lebowski style mystery where they're like trying to figure out or like Raymond Chandler sort of episodic, like big broad comic uh, journey that they would fall into. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was really obsessed at this period during why, about as a writer, why people need stories in the first place. Like why certain movies and certain stories attract us more than others. And the flip side of that is why when we just get a couple of pieces of information or a couple of moments that we observe, our brain can't help but try and make up a story that makes them all fit together and, and make sense together. And while I was researching this idea, it seemed to be, that's one thing that really makes us humans. And it's one of the things that made humans the dominant species on earth, right? Like if you see a bunch of mammoths walking towards you from far away, you start to tell like, are they wondering like, are they hungry? Are they gonna slow down? Like this was part of our survival instinct, but it also has a flip side to it, as we see in all these mindfulness apps and all these self-help books. It's also why our mind is constantly spinning all the time. And while you're waiting in line at the grocery store, you think about the weird thing you said on the podcast last week and wondered if it was taken out of context or how you were awkward at a party 10 
nine years ago and does that person ever think about it anymore? And it's just totally useless. It's totally maddening stuff. And I wondered like, okay, so we need this, these, this constant need for narrative to be human, but there's a bad side to it too. And like, what if I put that, the good and bad of that element within one character and made a character wonder if she was going insane or should trust her constantly spinning mind. And those were sort of the ideas I was thinking about as I was writing this, this thing that I thought, I don't know what's going to happen with it. I'm just going to put this out into the world and uh, I'm having fun with it. And I hope other people will too. I'm just going to jump in because you, since you mentioned Art Bell here, I had the Art Bell question later and I'm just kind of, moving it up because I was curious if Art Bell was something you discovered while researching some of this or if you were also someone who every now and then when they couldn't sleep would be up late at night and be listening to Coast to Coast with Art Bell because I back in my you know a little too close to Fox Mulder for my own comfort period <laughs> uh, listened to quite a bit of Coast to Coast. It is definitely latter, and then it graduated to, I, I became a subscriber to Coast to Coast so that I could just stream their archive whenever I wanted. So if I didn't, it became a thing where I didn't want to rely on insomnia <laughs> in order to hear the show. I would listen to it at any time. And I always, I love the show. My favorite thing about the show is I found it really funny how both George Nuri and Art Bell were true believers in this stuff, right? But they, you know, they have, that show would run from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. in California. So it's four hours to fill every single day. And I, I always thought it would be so funny how someone would be on there and would be like, yeah, I've been abducted 10 times by aliens. I don't know why. I don't know if it's some sort of catch and release program. And they would be like, of course, this makes total sense. I have my <laughs> own experiences without a body experiences. They would be taking it totally seriously. And then another guest would be on and, and would be like, I believe I'm the reincarnation of the Virgin Mary. And they would be taking it seriously, but you could tell in their voice that they were like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> like they had a line in their head that like, uh, we're not the crazy people that I have to sully my show with in order to get the real news about the paranormal and conspiracies out there. I love listening to that aspect of them. Uh, uh, even when they were, and then there were times when they were kind of probing to feel like, is this real or is this something I shouldn't real? I thought it was such, it was like a Stephen Colbert-esque performance for me. Can I, can I ask, because actually I, I never really was that familiar with, with Coast to Coast. So, I mean, what do you think is like the pie diet, the pie chart of, let's say people that would listen to it for just like, almost like comfort and like the soothing sound or almost like the routine of the show? versus the people that would listen to it and be genuinely like freaked out by the content. I mean, it sounds like every time I talked to you, with, with you about Avali, it was almost like it was almost like this meditative show that you would listen to just to kind of like in the background. It was definitely that. I mean, it is designed to be listened to late at night where he would be like coming to you from the desert. <laughs> like, it was, the, the sound design was really good for it. And you know, like any of these things, like every once in a while, you hear something, and you're like, all right, that does seem kind of weird. That, that, does, that does seem like a weird landform off the coast of Malibu, and I don't know how that could have been formed. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, how did you and uh, Jean-Pierre end up connecting? You want to take this one, Jean? Sure. Um, so, so I went to uh, an art school program 
uh, in Greece with with Vali's wife Nithya, and uh, just we were studying there just totally by chance when we were both university students, and um, that's how we first became friends. So fast forward, uh, I don't know, maybe about 15 years after that, um, I became a teacher and I now teach these uh, watercolor workshops around the world. And so one year I did it in uh, Ireland. And during that particular workshop, Nithya came and so did her whole family. So Vali also attended. She, so they were attending as, as, as participants um, and as well as their adorable twins. So it was like a whole family affair uh, as well as Bali's parents, Nithya's parents, it was incredible. The entire family came. And so we were just painting for a week. And in that context, it was pretty much just like, you know, uh, a painting course. We'd go to different locations or painting in plein air. And, um, you know, at that point, I think we were, we weren't really talking so much about comics and, you know, our interests outside of, you know, just the, the coursework. But of course, afterwards we, we kept in touch. And uh, I later did uh, some, some drawings um, for Inktober that following year. It was pretty much like a, I wanted to break down that particular Inktober um, as a, a sort of a sequential series of images re revolving around how my parents, well, my parents' lives. So, um, and so, so Bali saw those and we, I think the idea of like it being sequential and sort of, you know, there was, it was, it had a kind of a comic book feel to it. Um, we had a little back and forth about, about those particular images and how that might be something that were, it could, it could lead to collaborating on something together. Um, and I didn't realize it at that point yet, but well, I had already a, a story and a script in mind. So we just kept kind of going back and forth. And then over the holiday break, uh, later on that year, he sent over this, the script. He's like, check it out. This is, um, this is a story I, I, I wrote. And uh, I was immediately captured by the title, Genius Anim Animals, because I love to draw animals. Animals are often like, they appear in my, my, my paintings and stuff. So. I was like, okay, this, this seems interesting. And then as soon as I got into it and just like the way that the story sort of turned on itself and how it moves, like, as you mentioned in the beginning, like how it kind of starts off as this romantic comedy and there is this sort of relationship and then how it just kind of, you know, then moved into different territory. I was like, this is awesome. And I would love to be a a part of this because it just seemed like it would be so much fun to draw and also a challenge. Like I, could, I, I felt that immediately, like this would really be sort of like pushing myself a hundred percent beyond anything I'd ever done before. Um, so pretty much like I, I read it in one go and then I read it again, my wife read it and she was like, okay, you gotta do this. I'm like, I know, I hope I can do this. So that's kind of, and then we, from there, like, it was one of those things, one of those working relationships where just like miles and miles and miles of just like text back and forth, like just like, you know, like corresponding to all these little ideas and notes and like, you know, that kind of thing. And 
I mean, definitely I corresponded with Valley more than anybody that entire year. <laughs> I mean, it was just like constant, just like, you know, it was like, what do you think about this? This little, you know, little message, little tweak here. And um, yeah, we just, we just developed the, the, the book constantly through that next year and a half, more or less. So yeah, we really didn't know what we were doing, which was kind of the most thrilling part of it. And except we both knew the, you know, this kind of weird Cohen brothers slash Thomas Pynchon tone was what we really wanted. We wanted it to be funny. We wanted the threats to feel real and we didn't know how to do it. So we just kind of started putting stuff out and and passing and June would sketch it out and send it to me and I would have no idea what I was looking at and then I'd say good and then he would do more and I'd be like okay now I think I was wrong before <laughs> and June would re redraw it and refine it and I would get you know get, he would get back a section and then we would do more and then I would go back and say like these jokes aren't quite working I don't know why and June would say what about what if we're slow, maybe we're slowing down the pace too much or we're speeding it up too much, or maybe I'm, maybe we're, we're hitting the punchline too hard and the joke is not a, a punchline that needs to be hit like that. It should be thrown away more. So if I redraw the panel in this way, it became a really fantastic, the fact that I didn't know how to do it and we had never made a book before made it actually one of the more fun artistic experiences of my career because I had been a working TV and film writer at that point for a decade. And, you know, like I was starting to feel, get into my groove. We sometimes in the, in the writer's room when we're, when we're tired, we joke like, that's a shift F7 joke because in Microsoft Word, like if you hit shift F7, that pops up the thesaurus. So you just like <laughs> get a different version of the same word, the same word you're using. And if I felt that happening, I couldn't do that with this book because I had not worked in this form before. And it, it was really fun to rediscover some, uh, the, the like nuances of a script and comic timing in this different place and, and collaborate with June in order to find it. And I think because of where we came from, we kind of made something that I'm very proud of and, I, and doesn't really look and feel like even the the stuff that we've read before instead it's like a mashup of everything we've loved uh in our in our in our lives from comics and tv and, and books and stuff like that so uh you know the plan was was to publish this year but uh you know things took a turn with uh the pandemic <laughs> right <laughs> as they did for so many people but yeah <laughs> yeah i mean we initially thought we june had gone to a uh, con remember those <laughs> and i missed them very much <laughs> in england and met some publishers and we and we were planning on going out with one of them but then the pandemic hit and it became a question of like well, we're not famous. Like, how are, without cons, how are two people you've never heard of going to publicize a book? And how are they even going to print these books? And at that point, we didn't even know when stores were going to open up again. Mm -hmm. And we were getting antsy wondering, like, when the release date would be because it kept feeling like it was getting pushed off and we were at home. And finally, in the spirit of, like, just throwing anything against the wall and seeing what happened, which is how we made this entire book, we thought what if we put it out in chapters for free online? Because we're bored and maybe other people are bored and would like to read something weird and escapist. And I think we had the advantage of if no one looks at it, 
then no one knows we tried it. So who cares? <laughs> it won't be embarrassing because we're already, nobody's in, the, in this world. And the thing we found out is a lot of other people were bored at home. And a lot of our friends who don't necessarily go to the comics shop every week to stop by and check out what they have, they, they checked out the comic because it was easy to get to. And they read, the, you know, they read it every week or they read the whole thing. And we got a lot of messages from people who were like, I'm not really a comics person, but I really enjoyed this. And are there other books that you think I would like? And we were really touched by the response, especially because the response, our answer to that was like, yeah, there's a lot of, if you like weird stuff, there's, this, is the, <laughs> this is the genre for you. And we were really touched and thrilled by getting to put out the book in that way. Um, and the blessing in disguise, I guess we had to take it from the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say that with the, um, you know, with the pandemic and just the, the feeling of, you know, like that heaviness that initially set in, uh, you know, you know, just thinking back to March and April and May, where it's just like everything was like, what, what is happening? What are we going to do? And I, I think we, I think we just both wanted to sort of stimulate ourselves as well as like just like we had a book that was finished and I remember we were even thinking should we should we do revisions on the book should we just because like we had that energy and we were cooped up and we we, we discussed seriously like yeah we could do um maybe the story is affected by the pandemic itself maybe that's what happens maybe that's the way that it, uh the story turns or maybe it's set in a different time so it can sort of we can relate to it in a different way like and it touches on the pandemic and it was just like this sort of this uh, frenetic energy and i think a lot of it had to do with just being stuck at home and we but we wanted to share it we just mm -hmm. wanted we want we had a book that was fully finished and we wanted to get it out in the world and so we were just like, you know, we could actually do this. We could, and we were inspired by what so many other artists and creators have done um, with their books. They put it, whether they put it out just like on their own website or they put it out on Gumroad or they just, you know, they just sort of self-published it. And there was also this spirit, and there still is, um, of just people sharing, you know, what they've done, um, you know, sh that, that people put in, doing classes online, like Zoom classes or free, you know, meditation or yoga, you know, stuff like people are just sort of like offering their work and their, their, their selves and their services out to just the world at large to connect with others because people are just, we, we need that, that contact and that connection at this point. And in a way, uh, I think we were just like, you know, let's just, let's just tap into that too. We have our book. Let's, we want to share it. We want to hear what other people think about it good the good bad and the ugly and let's just let's just have a have a conversation about it and and and, and kind of do what we're doing right now you know just like to talk about it with others and um so that meant yeah we are not going to kind of go in the more traditional publishing route at least not now um and we we had to basically sort of make that decision but then it just opened up this whole entire new avenue which is really exciting like okay now we got to build this website and decide to do chapter by chapter and how are we going to design the website however you know and all this other like stuff which was kind of fun and uh and we learned a lot so yeah i mean i feel like there's so many everybody's got these types of 
pandemic stories, you know, like these yeah. stories where they're just sort of like in that time of frenetic energy, they're just doing stuff that they never would have considered otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting because these, you know, sort of, you know, things that were always in the background in terms of comics publishing, comics distribution, you know, really started to kind of fill in the gap, you know, especially during that two month period when there, you know, were no, no comics to speak of in the traditional market. So, you know, you're seeing, or, you know, I, I'm getting more press releases for Kickstarters, for example, you know, there's yeah. more people who are experimenting with like Webtoon and, and web comics in general, um, you know, for, for you guys, you know, taking this project and, 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 putting, you know, putting it out there, uh, you know, what, what has, you know, what's the response been the past couple of months? The response has been, when, been really good. I mean, it's especially because around the pandemic, I feel like a lot of guys like you guys wanted to continue having content and reading stuff and being and being able to enjoy themselves. So we found like the online community to be really, really helpful not only for helping get the word out about the book, but like to learn about the space in general. Like we would send, we would write people whose who shows we enjoyed. And not only would they, not only would they help get the word out about the book, they would also point us to other stuff that they found interesting recently. And I think that was, we, we found that like, you, nothing can make fans <laughs> stop being fans. And we really, we really, really enjoyed that that element of it. And it, it was a time where I think a lot of us wanted to feel our community because we were isolated in our houses uh, and not able to go meet, meet people who had weird, uh, slightly different tastes from us. And that was, that was really, really nice. And we've also been fascinated by a lot of the writing and reporting on this because kind of, I don't know what's going to happen. Like there is a lot of changed this year in comics and I don't, and nobody knows like what's going to stick and what's gonna what's gonna just revert back to these like giant powerful models and forces that existed before? I mm -hmm. would hope that some of the changes, you know, one thing that I think you guys and a lot of fans uh, talk about a lot that we I share is the market for adult comics that aren't just about superheroes is is small, and yet a lot of people I know want to make that stuff and consume that stuff and there's just not I don't I don't see the same pipeline for it that I see elsewhere but I'm seeing more of it now as on Kickstarter as creators are kind of just like I'm going to do the thing that I've always wanted to do that might not necessarily have gotten a gigantic publisher uh, mm -hmm. interested and if I'm hoping a lot of that stuff does well improves to publishers that when this is over let's make more of that stuff and make it more widely and readily available because people do want to read that stuff too. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, and I also think that uh, just to piggyback on that, um, I've seen a lot of publishers or just, just creators um, that are, they're realizing how difficult it is, especially with the pandemic and everything um, to just do practical things, you know, with shipping, shipping bulk orders, just getting out of the house, getting, you know, um, anyway, I, I think, I think that digital, uh, digital PDF comic comics are just available to, to read as easily as possible. It's just becoming more, more acceptable. People are just, I've seen, I've seen publishers say, you know, 
we were sold out of the print book, but just you could buy it on, you could buy the PDF on Gumroad or you could, you could buy it digitally just as well. And a lot of people just opting for that, choosing for that because they don't, I just, I think people are just, they're just more and more used to that. And this whole experience has made it even more so. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do wonder about sort of the uh, direct market, the, the comic shops, how, you know, how, how hard this year has been and um, what it must be like for them as they're planning to move forward. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was listening to what you guys were talking about recently about the, the Qbert school, yeah. uh, the comic shop there and how, you know, they were having to adjust. I mean, the, the, the shop there, uh, you know, had to adjust because there's just less books out on the market this year. So, yeah, I mean, it's like this, this, everybody's just like wondering, you know, what, what's going to happen. So while that's happening, it is really interesting how much activity is, is, is still going on. Like comics are being made, comics are being produced and sort of just, you know, put out there. Um, it's just, and, and, and because of that, I think there is going to be this, this change that will settle, settle in because people are getting just used to this new, new ways to, to read it, new ways to receive the books. No, absolutely. You know, on the, on the creative side, the, the energy is still there. And, you know, the stuff that I've been reading this year, both, you know, through the direct market and, and like Kickstarters and stuff like that, you know, it has been amazing. It's, it's, it's definitely the industry side of things where it's, you know, the, the, all the uncertainty, uh, you know, the, the stories are always going to be there. It's, it's, it's just the business models that are, are changing and kind of, a victim of the of the frenetic uncertainty that you know is 2020 and 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 will be 2021 most you know more likely than not but uh you know uh, you know Jupier, uh you do a lot of of painting in addition to uh sequ- sequentials a lot of watercolor work how did uh genius animals present you know a major uh shift or or, or challenge for you oh that's a that's a great question because I initially wanted to do the book with um, ink and in watercolor um, or gouache, um, but I just knew that practically speaking, it would be just way too hard to do, um, at, like and to produce it within a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. You know, just never mind just the actual traditional approach to it. But then you think about you have to scan it and then you clean it up and then it becomes more or less like a digital file anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, so you're doing it traditionally, but then you have to also do digital adjustments. So I, I just went, okay, I'll, I'll just, I'll just try to approach it uh, digitally. But there's of course like a huge learning curve with that as well. Mm. And so the first pages would take like, I don't know, like a, like a few days each. And I'm like, I can't, how am I going to, do this how am i going to get through the entire book uh if, if it's taking me so long just to do just to do one page mm-hmm. but like you know just like with anything uh you get into this rhythm and you know you get into you 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 know the characters more and more and how to render them and how to you know how to convey their expressions and emotions so in a way they're like a shorthand develops and definitely um, I started to feel more comfortable with uh, working digitally. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it ended up becoming almost like this, um, you know, this like uh, systematic process where I would work through, I had like this workflow, just like, you know, 
just like anybody would, you know, like you, you kind of have, instead of, uh, you know, like the, let's say the pencil or inker colorist model, mm-hmm. I was sort of jamming everything all together in one go. So sometimes I would just do like flats and color and then ink on top. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would, you know, or I, would, I would do like a very loose thumbnail sketch and just do colors on straight on top of that and then ink the lines on top of that. But ultimately ended up being some sort of like a system a systematic workflow um but uh yeah I, that was one of the things that i really kind of missed at the end of the entire experience of just like how how you just become so sharp over the course of the project mm-hmm. you know that you and in a way i don't even know if i'll ever draw like that i don't because i don't naturally usually render like that i mean some, i mean i guess i do but you know because i am working mostly with ink and watercolor so in a way, I kind of miss working like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I almost want to get back into that style or that approach at times because it's just like such like a certain way of thinking. And I was by the end of that project, I was like, wow, I, I could, you know, the, I could draw them so much faster and so much more expressive. And I kind of want to keep going. But now the book is, is, is wrapping up, you know, I'm already towards the end of it. So that was, and that was something that my friends who had, you know, had already done graphic novels, they told me, they said, it's going to, it's going to be brutal. You're going to be just like totally beaten down by it, but you're like, as soon as you're done, you're just going to want to keep doing more. <laughs> That's, that was totally true. And I was like, oh man, like I, like, I want to do more, like want to do more pages. What am I going to do next? And yeah, and you're just like sort of like trip like floating afterwards. And then Bali, you've got a long history in TV, you know, as we, as we mentioned already, uh, you know, how was this experience, you know, writing, writing, you know, for what became Genius Animals, writing for, you know, graphic novel, uh, you know, different than your experiences writing for TV, you know, what, what kind of shifts, you know, mental shifts did you kind of have to make to work in this medium? Well, the biggest thing would be, I typically have worked on shows. My first job was on My Name is Earl. Then I was on 30 Rock and then I was on Modern Family. And these are all really talky shows. Like people talked a lot. There's a ton of dialogue. And that's the sort of stuff I like doing. I like writing these very hyperverbal characters. Um, and that is not what comics are about. <laughs> like people, you know, you want people like exchanges, but people don't really want to read a long, uh, long blocks of text. So the first thing I would have to do is, it, it was cut a bunch of text. And I would, every single time we would still think like, there's still too many words. So I think there's probably, there were probably 10, 10 passes of me cutting as many words away as possible <laughs> over and over again and try and working with June to try and figure out what jokes we could sell without any words at all and how to slow down, how to slow it down. I think the most text heavy section is the coast to coast parody. There's a, there's a parody of coast to coast called C to C of the conspiracy theory radio show in the book. And that's super text heavy. And I really was not able to, I, I just love the language of that show so much that I wasn't able to, to pull back as much as I maybe should have. And the other elements I think I alluded to before were, how do you get comic timing? Like there would be times on the set of Modern Family where I would remember watching Ed O'Neill who played sort of the patriarch of the entire family, Jay Pritchett. And I always was so fascinated by Ed's performance because he would, he would do his line readings where that he kind of 
threw them all away. He made them like a real person. He wouldn't, I would think, oh man, he doesn't hit his jokes as hard as I thought he might. And every individual joke is maybe less funny than it could be just on that line. But because he pulled it back a little bit, the overall character of Joe, of um, Jay, was a million times funnier than it would have been had he just been pounding those jokes and telling you this is a joke, this is a joke, this is a joke. <laughs> so trying to figure out how to get like Ed O'Neill's comic genius <laughs> onto a page uh, was, was another thing I found interesting. And, you know, if a joke is not working on set, I would sometimes get to go to the actor and say like, me, why don't we try hitting this part a little bit differently? Or could you, maybe we'll rework it so it lands this way because it's not quite getting a laugh. In a comic, you don't have a chance to do give a line reading. Like everybody reads the lines in their own voice. And I have no idea if they're funny or not. Like, except for Batman, which everyone probably now does Christian Bale's voice. Like, I have no idea how anybody hears any of the characters in the comic book. Mm -hmm. And that would make me crazy. Like, I was like, how, what if someone who's not funny is reading the book? Then they'll think this isn't funny because they're not delivering the lines right. So we had, you know, we had to write basically a lot of, uh, this is not a nice term, I guess, a lot of actor proof. I wrote the <laughs> jokes like that I thought were, were not reliant on delivery mm -hmm. uh, in a way. So that was, that was all very different from how I, I wrote before. And uh, it was fun to write them write them in those ways. And obviously nothing that needs to be completely like that. Cause like June would make the drawing such that, you know, the, there's this sort of, there's a character in the book without giving too much away that is the heir to the Bugs Bunny fortune, basically. And I wanted him to have a certain kind of vibe. And June drew the character that kind of has like, a John Malkovich in Burn After Reading vibe. And I hear it that way. And I think because of his character design, a lot of that comes, came that way, across that way too. And it was really fun. That was not a process I would typically be part of on a show, but working with June to like try and get small adjustments he would make would make me hear the jokes differently. And that was really fun. Yeah, I, I, I would say that the, the jokes, came right out for me. I mean, like as far as just from this initial script, I mean, I remember reading the script and I was, I was laughing and I could hear and see the characters in a way, or at least the type of characters that would be delivering those jokes and delivering those lines. And I think it was just, um, like, I think part of it was, you know, some of it was, getting across like the subtlety or like the, you know, because a lot of times it's, it's not even the, like, so much the joke, it's more just like the back and forth sort of play between two, two characters talking to one another and getting that sort of that, that beat, beat, beat rhythm, you know, one person talking over the other. And in that kid, in those types of cases, a lot of it was re really just sort of nuts and bolts, sort of how you break down panels and, uh, lay out the balloons in a way you know and and all of that also was for both of us pretty pretty new i mean to to kind of like get a sense of like does that feel right to you is that pretty much how the joke was when you wrote it and or does that feel like it's kind of like fluid or does that feel clunky you know 
Um, and the funny thing is that we didn't really have anybody else. I mean, okay, we had like our respective, you know, partners, uh, but we weren't like, you know, we couldn't like workshop it necessarily. We just like, mm -hmm. okay, I think that will work. Okay, that's good. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, you said before that, uh, Jim here, that you, you know, you like drawing animals. Is drawing one of the scenes of lots of animals, a crowd scene for animals, more, less, or just a different challenge than drawing a crowd scene of people? I mean, I know I can't remember if this is something that we had an interview ourselves, Dan, or something I read somewhere else, but someone who had drawn a Western comic, they had to draw one more friggin' horse because there's no sense in the way a horse looks. I think there was something I read somewhere. I don't think it was one of ours, but still. okay. Damn, I wanted to take credit for it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, I feel that that artist about the horses. Horses can be so difficult to draw. I mean, some <laughs> some some artists they have horses down, uh, and you you know who I'm talking about. Some of these incredible uh, horse renderers, <laughs> but yeah, horses are horses are tough. Um, that's a great question. I would say it is. Because, okay, I would say it's probably more difficult to do a crowd of different animals just because there are so many different shapes and forms. So, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of, of, you know, research basically to that goes into it, you know, like even just to get the proportions right. You know, if you want to have, let's say like, I don't know, an elephant and a cat in the same panel um, and make it work, you got to think about like the camera angle and like, the, just like where are you going to position each of those figures i mean you have to do that with with people with humans as well but i mean we're all pretty much the same proportion and so especially if you have a crowd scene you start to simplify the the forms and the the, the figures so like if you have like a whole mass of people you're not really drawing all of those figures i mean you, you are but you're sort of uh simplifying them so you just see like kind of like heads and shoulders like kind of figures blocking other figures um so they become just like a mass as opposed to just like all those individuals let's say but with animals you almost have to think about the different individuals you have to think about okay well there's a at least that's what i had to do in some of those scenes like okay now i'm drawing a lizard now i'm drawing a horse or a few horses now i'm drawing you know dogs <laughs> i would have to sort of like really think about them in each particular design, each, you know, animal. Um, but look, any crowd scene is, is, is rough. <laughs> it's tough to do a crowd scene. And oftentimes, you know, you got to have them in for an establishing shot or, you know, like, you know, just like a, a, a busy street scene, you know, even like characters that are just like in the background walking along the street, you know, you got to think about, them in relationship to the figures in the foreground and are always pretty tricky. And um, I, I, I love hearing, you know, these artist writers when they're talking about, you know, writing the script for their own book and they'll be like, yeah, I deliberately didn't put too many crowds <laughs> working on one of those panels. Um, but then at the same time, they know like if, uh, you know, like I think of like guys like Daniel Warren Johnson and just like how he's like, you see, he's just like, all right, man, I'm just going to freaking do it. I'm just going to have like a massive army of like <laughs> zombies or whatever figures that are like fighting each other because 
the story just needs it. It's got to be kick-ass, so I'm just going to do it. Um, <laughs> so I love that. I love that type of stuff, too, where it's just like, okay, the story calls for it, so you just got to do it. And I think, um, you know, regarding Genius Animals, like, there are a few scenes where it was like that. It was just like, this, I can imagine this could look awesome, and it's got to go, like, the whole entire way. Like, it's got to have, like, figures and everything, all the madness, all the chaos. Um, it's just, it just has to be that way. And actually the truth is, is like as hard as those scenes might be, or is like kind of time consuming. They're also like, for me, like they're the most fun to draw. Like, mm-hmm. cause it's just like, like that's like when I was, a, when I was a kid, that was the type of stuff that I would just be sort of like, like a crazy battle scene or a crazy, like, you know, with all these different characters and all these different creatures. Like I love doing that type of stuff. And I think I still do. So. Um, how much, you know, apart from, from, you know, staying up late and listening to coast to coast, uh, how much research did you have to do Vali, into, uh, you know, a- uh, animal conditioning experiments and, and, you know, some of the, the conspiracy theories, uh, you know, that are, are presented in the book. You know, I, I just naturally find that stuff kind of fun. So I think a lot of it is, I, I just kind of had noted over the years <laughs> and I, I, I really love the bloop was with this. It was just something that real existed in real life uh, for people who aren't, who haven't read the read yet. Like there was a gigantic sound that was picked up by all, by all these microphones that the United States government has in the oceans. And it was sort of animal in nature and way louder than any sound that had been recorded before. And no one really knew what it was or what animal could have caused it. And I kind of always like stories like that. <laughs> and I've always been fascinated by them. So I, I think I just kind of filed them away over time. And you know, we've gotten some questions about conspiracy theories and, and how much we like conspiracy theories as we've been talking to friends about the book. And it's really like, the thing we realized is I really love the conspiracy world of my youth, like the X-Files and crop circles and uh, um, weird rumors that you would hear that the Blair Witch Project was real and coast to coast. Like those conspiracy theories were really fun because I think they made the world seem a lot bigger and more exciting than it was. Like I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and the idea that if there was a crop circle that like it meant aliens visited your town was awesome. Whereas I find the conspiracy theories of today to be like way darker and make the world smaller. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's not this big amount of wonder out there that's really fascinating. It's like, one guy is evil and controls everything. And that's not fun. I don't want to think about that. (laughs) You know, and I was, I was going to actually, I was going to bring this up in a little bit too, because, you know, like Matt and I, especially Matt, you know, grow up watching the X-Files. And so, you know, again, it's, again, conspiracy theories as, as sort of entertainment value and, you know, mostly harmless and fun to explore with like a skeptical eye or even a sense of wonder. And, yeah, I, I, I don't, I guess you could ask when, I guess when is really 2016, but like when the hell did conspiracy th- series, you know, become about like deep state government, uh, pedo rings run out of pizza shops. It's, it's you know, yeah, definitely it's, not the same as little gray men. 
Exactly. I was like, come on, we had it with the Illuminati guys. That was, that was fun. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm, when the X-Files came back right at that time, this, I, I'm not necessarily speaking qualitative content, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel like it worked as much partially because as they're talking about it they have lines in there about how you know we are in we're we're existing in a time where the government is attacking the fbi it's like yeah you look out the window and the kind of paranoia that Mulder had before is now on the front page of the newspaper it's not amusing when you're living it <laughs> Completely. And even when you watch the X-Files before, the joke was always like, Scully was skeptical. And, and you wanted Mulder to be like, I've been right a hundred times. Like, why are you still skeptical? <laughs> like, we do this every week. Just like, at least come along for the ride. How are you so skeptical at the beginning of this right now? And that was sort of funny. But now it's not even just Mulder. It's like out there everywhere. And you're like, Scully, you seem crazy. <laughs> But everyone's I mean, talking about this all over. But also they kept Mulder in the basement of the FBI for a reason. They didn't put him in charge. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> with the with the with the with the with genius animals though, mm -hmm. like there was I mean, Vali was so deliberate about, you know, when it came to the character that was uh, Nick Attic, who is like basically mm -hmm. the host of the C the C show. You know, he's, he's leading, he's talking with all these people that are bringing up different conspiracies. And there's a bar where there's all these conspiracy theories going on. And like the, the tone of it being a type of place where it's actually kind of more like the 90s style conspiracy type place, mm -hmm. as opposed to like present day was something that was like, no, that's what we want to go for. We don't want to really go for like this kind of heavy, dark like like sort of devastating look at like the, at the world how it is these days type of conspiracy that is sort of like main has become mainstream today nowadays that's not what we're going for yeah and so that was something that like avoiding was like, glancing yeah. to cue or like anything feeling right. like any of that stuff mm -hmm. like it's so close to uh, that world but we were like then it starts to just it's not an escape anymore <laughs> and we wanted yeah. this to feel like a fun escape Right. Right. So like when we're, you know, as, as far as the studio, the radio studio, where they're kind of like, they're talking um, of, of the C2C show, we wanted to have um, more like references of like, you know, whether it was like sightings of Elvis, like Elvis is still alive. And uh, yeah, like uh, the little green men that have, like stuff like that. <laughs> like far side. I mean, like sort of like the imagery that you would find in far side. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that, the Bigfoot video, exactly. <laughs> ludicrous video. <laughs> yeah. I I loved that sequence, especially because while you clearly had your tongue planted firmly in your cheek, it wasn't mean. It could be very, very easy to be like, "Look at these rubes," <laughs> but you never sunk to you never punched down mm -hmm. no and i do cut like 
there's some reason that stuff is fun. <laughs> you do always wonder, like, the, I, I always like the idea that there is someone at the FBI that would have to listen to Coast to Coast to be like, it's mostly craziness, but what if one of them is hitting on something that we're really doing? We want to be able to get ahead of it. <laughs> always seemed fun to me. I was reading the sequence with your, your Bugs Bunny analog, and now seems like the right time to ask a question that has occurred to me watching Bugs Bunny cartoons every now and then. Is there actually a hero in those cartoons? Because you address Bug, the, the Buzz Bunny as somewhat of a sociopath, and it, <laughs> it kind of seems accurate. I mean, you know, Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam, yeah, they're, or Wile E. Coyote, too, when he shows up. They're trying to kill him, but they're, just, they're, they're trying to, or at least Wile E. Coyote and uh, Elmer they're fun. They're, they're hunt. They're, they want. They, they need food, and Bugs just <laughs> gaslights them and destroys them. <laughs> I to, to me, Bugs is for sure the hero. I love. <laughs> he he. They're they're attacking his livelihood, and not only not his livelihood, his life, and not only his ability he, to live in a hole uh, in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is he going to fight back, he's going to make them feel horrible with his glee, with glee for even deigning to think that they should want to eat rabbit. <laughs> his glee with which he defends himself is so fun. <laughs> I have a four-year-old twins right now, and I started showing them Bugs Bunny stuff. It was because I, I love Bugs Bunny. He's so much, they started watching Mickey Mouse. It's so funny, like, not watching Mickey Mouse. Very early on, kids, uh, I work for Disney right now, by the way. <laughs> kids very early on, they recognized Mickey and love Mickey. And I'm always flabbergasted by this because he's obviously, it's great character design and he's very lovable. But I think like, Mickey's kind of a boring character. Like he's just kind of nice and he's kind of happy. And I'm always like, Bugs, now he's funny. Like Bugs is, has a, some personality to him and he's got some charisma and I always love it. So I was showing them some Bugs Bunny stuff, but it's so funny now watching it as an adult and I'm showing my kids this stuff and like Bugs will be escaping from someone. Then he'll be see like a bunch of human women in bikini sunbathing and he'll like get horny. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, who, who is this joke for? This, uh, this, this cartoon is written for six-year-olds. Like, what? This is a rabbit that's getting horny for cartoon women. It's. I don't know how to exactly unpack it, but I gotta say, I love Bugs, and he may be a sociopath, and I don't know what that says about me then. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's just because I'm a big fan of Wiley e. Coyote, super genius. <laughs> I think poor. I look at him. It's like, oh man, Bugs just—he just destroys that poor coyote. Yeah, Wiley Wile e. Coyote. The the choice of making him essentially Fraser when he talks <laughs> is so funny. I never could get enough of that when I was a kid. Well, now I want a version of Fraser where uh, he just falls off cliffs constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sideshow Bob is basically that. <laughs> you know what? Yes. True. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, are you ever unhappy when Sideshow Bob shows up? <laughs> I, I could watch that man step on a rake for 
<laughs> you know, a minute straight <laughs> uh, because it's actually happened. But um, another, uh, you know, uh, character in the story, the, 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 lead, the lead character, Alexandra, uh, is, a, is a film editor for a man who is very much like, but legally is not uh, Werner Herzog. Um, what, man, what is it about Herzog that lends itself to comedy? I was thinking about this because like, you know, he's in The Mandalorian and I like the Mandalorian very much, but like every one of his scenes takes me out of the Mandalorian because it's Werner Herzog. It's not whatever character, uh, I forget his name and it doesn't matter, you know, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something about his intense seriousness, no matter what the subject matter. <laughs> That's really great. But I also think, you know, Herzog is legitimately funny. He's a funny person. I went to uh, a screening of Agura, The Wrath of God, a couple of years ago, and he was there and did a Q&A afterwards. And someone asked him a question about the comedy and when people laughed, and he said, when people were laughing, and he said, you know, one thing that was really nice was the screening was 25 years after the release or 20 years. He said, today, it made me really happy to hear people laugh at the same things that I thought were funny all those years ago. And it was really a thrilling moment for me because I thought, oh, he's in on the joke. Like he knows he's being funny. And that made his movies even more amazing to me because they're so serious. <laughs> he always seems to be, yeah, like in on the joke. Um, like there's, he, he seems to, he seems to be just so aware of every little thing that he's conveying, you know, whether it's just like, uh, um, you know, awe or uh, confusion or like a revelation or just like shock. Um, did you guys see that clip? There's a clip that I think he, he's, he, he's talking about the languages that he knows. And he's like, I will never speak French unless like there is a gun to my head. And that in and of itself is funny, like him saying that. But then he brings up this story of where he actually was forced to speak French because he literally had a gun to his head when he was filming in the Congo, I think. <laughs> so you're, you're like listening to him like, ha yeah, he's never going to speak French. Why would he speak French, this German guy? But then he brings up like this sort of just very real, scary, traumatic incident in his life where he was, he had to speak French to basically survive. Yeah, these rebels and, like captured him and were yeah. <laughs> trying to talk to him and saying like, he doesn't know what you're saying. And they had like a machine gun to his head. So he finally defended himself in French and saved right. his life. And then he was like, ugh. But it was awful. Such a pure <laughs> language. <laughs> like I don't know. I mean, I'm at my desk where I write right now, and you know, this is this the Werner Herzog box set is always close to me. It's the first <laughs> but I was just gonna say, anyone who could deliver that one monologue he has in his one cameo in Parks and Recreation <laughs> is so clearly in on the joke. Yes. <laughs> And I think that was, I mean, that was pretty much the aesthetic where it's just like right away, there's, you got to have, so Werner Herzog is a key character in the story and also Bugs Bunny is as well. 
like he is also pretty so like just having that bridge between and there's actually a lot of in a way there's maybe some similarities there um you know just so i we're just like how how to kind of tell the story thread that needle to kind of convey both of those characters or both of those figures in the same mm-hmm. the same world i like the idea of people listening to this show now and being like what is this book <laughs> what are they talking about <laughs> I'm also just like in the back of my head thinking about Werner Herzog running Bugs Bunny lines like, it I a stinker. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if he made a documentary about Bugs Bunny, uh, there's no amount of money I wouldn't pay to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, as we're, we're kind of cooling down, um, you know, what, what are you guys both reading right now? I am reading this book that I feel like every everyone read six months ago. It's called The Splendid and the Vile. It's this biography of Churchill Mm. during World War II. And it's sort of like one of my favorite genres of book because it's the story of a crazy person being crazy all the time in crazy circumstances. (laughs) And just like Churchill during World War II, the stories that built up around him, He's just a functional alcoholic who's just wakes up in the morning, starts drinking champagne, drinking all day, making people stay up till 4 a.m. with him at night, drinking poor while he like writes telegrams to Roosevelt begging him to enter the war. Uh, and it's something that's not that, that's not that, uh, I'm not that familiar with World War II, so it was sort of fascinating to me. And also I've been working through sort of like the Linda, let me see if I have one here, those Linda Berry books, like drawing books and comics books and doing some of those exercises with my, the drawing exercises oh, that's with great. my kids mm. to just kind of see what happens. And it's, uh, I'm not even very good at this stuff and I don't draw that much, but it's like her, she's so amazing. Like her, so her work is so amazing. Is It makes me rethink what a comic book is and what a book is and, the I, her central thesis that everyone is a creative being and has something interesting artistic to do is like so fascinating and drawing with four years olds makes it immediately clear that she's totally right and I wish everyone would do stuff like that and put their own weird work out into the world because I want to consume it. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm reading. I'm just about finished the um, um, the French. I think it's French. Bande dessinée, the comic um, Rebetico. It's came out like ten years ago. It's by uh, David Prudhomme, mm. and it's about uh, like uh, Rebetico music, um, kind of like the Greek the Greek blues is a way that it's described, and so sort of some of the uh, some of the like the, the the first musicians that were like the big names of that movement back in the 30s were making this type of music was almost like a gap an act against the uh the, the, the dictator of the time in, in Greece and uh I am pretty blown away by it because the the arts and just the gestures of the of the characters is so it feels so much like like Greek characters and um, my wife is Greece, Greece, uh, Greek, and I lived in Greece. Um, so I was, I thought at first, maybe the artists or the, 
I thought maybe he had he had Greek roots or something, and I don't think so. I think he just loved the music and he just did a ton of research, and he watched a bunch of it. And I, I I don't even know. He probably went over there and, but like just these really cool little things that he does in the drawings. You know, it's not even really so much in the text. It's just the way that he does these certain expressions. Like it's incredible how well he rendered the sort of the feeling of this sort of 1930s Athens. Yeah, it's really good. Well, uh, guys, it's been a, a great chat. Uh, how can people, first of all, look at Genius Animals and, and also, you know, follow the work that you guys are doing online? The whole book is available for free at geniusanimals.net. Uh, we also have links to our sort of social media, Twitter and Instagram stuff there. If, you, if you're into it and you want to keep up with what's going on, there's an email list you can join at the bottom of the page if you we're trying to figure out how to make a print version of the book because some people have been asking us about that and we'll keep you updated on that right now. But I don't think, I think we like the vibe of having the book up there for free right now. And I don't think that's coming down anytime soon. So you can, you can check it out. All, all eight chapters are up there right now. Geniusanimals.net. Awesome guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much for hosting. This has been a real blast. Thank you so much guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. WMQA.